0: The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McEachan and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. Hey there, how you going?
1: I'm Ben McKeckin. And I'm his absolutely fabulous friend, Mark Hadley. Welcome to episode 120
0: of The Big Picture for the week beginning August 14. Coming up on today's show... A guest reviewer and a psychology expert join us to discuss anorexia drama to the bone and how we can respond to it.
1: The weird, worrying world of Fargo returns. Happy birthday, James Bond.
0: And the top five internet movies. But, Mark Hadley, I think the big question on everyone's lips this week is... Where on earth is Sam Robinson yes, and why is he heck? not sitting here and talking with us? I bet
1: half the people in the audience have just turned off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what? Come, come back. Oh, no, they've actually turned off, so they oh, can't yeah, actually yeah, come can't. back. I'll text but- them. if you could Mark um, this might take me a while in in the absence of Sam I'll be Sam and what Sam usually does right at this point in the show apart from saying hello to us is Ben what's in cinemas this week good question Ben (laughs) great question Ben glad you asked what's happening in cinemas this week Mark as you well know a movie that came out a documentary that came out on Thursday an Inconvenience sequel which you got stuck into a little bit on the show last week. This is Al Gore's um, follow-up to his Oscar-winning Inconvenient Truth. Go and check out the podcast of The Big Picture from last week or check out Mark's uh, video about the Inconvenient Sequel at bigpicturewebsite.com. But in short, Mark wasn't a terribly big fan of Inconvenient Sequel. It inconvenienced my day. Yeah, it really did. You weren't weren't that into it. Though you are into something that's coming to cinemas this Thursday, The Dark Tower stars Matthew McConaughey, as far as I can understand, the devil, pretty much, kind (laughs) of, in a much-anticipated adaptation of Stephen King's best-selling series of novels about The the Dark Tower. This is um, one that should be one of 2017's biggest original hits, possibly, although it's not going too well around the world. It's
1: already mined in controversy. We're going to talk a little bit more about it next week.
0: Yeah, yeah, we are. So, uh, look, we'll hear more about The Dark Tower, but it's highly anticipated and it's been a big one on Mark's radar all year. Okay, Mark, that's the big screen. What about the small screen this week? Well, this week, the ABC, specifically
1: on Tuesday, uh, Catalyst is going to have Meet the Avatars. Now, if you know Catalyst, it's like a groundbreaking, I um, or benchmark setting sort of science show on the ABC and Meet the Avatars takes us on a fascinating journey with biomedical engineer Dr. Jordan Nguyen, Nguyen. I'm never really good with those sort of names My pronunciations right? yes, are terrible okay. also <laughs> Please go My Dr.
0: Apologies, Jordan apologies
1: Dr. Jordan exploring the bizarre world of virtual reality and what is being developed as the global front lines of this field are advanced you know can our real life our hopes our fears our dreams be affected and changed by engaging with growing technology uh, so, so if it's you not- plug in you might actually be Happier.
0: So it's not, as the obvious joke would suggest, Meet the Avatars. It's not a cast reunion with Sam Worthington <laughs> and Zoe Saldana from that very famous James Cameron movie, which is still the highest grossing film of all time. It's not Meet the Avatars. Yeah, which is why I actually initially went, Oh! And then went, okay. Well, no, actually, it's about science. <laughs> Anything okay, this, else on the small screen? This Friday,
1: August 18, finally... Marvel's The Defenders arrives on Netflix. Now, for anybody who's been following this universe, we know that we have been in a multi-year build-up to the arrival of this TV series. We've had Jessica Jones and Daredevil laying the groundwork. Then Luke Cage came along. Well, Luke Cage was part of Jessica Jones. But then we had the Luke Jones, uh, Luke Cage standalone. I'm still trying to keep up. I know. Then Iron Fist. Um, and now they are all
0: finally had their prequel series and they're defending this New York City together. Uh, because the name, The Avengers, was taken, so now these are called the, the Defenders? So starting this Friday, yeah.
1: Well, they're kind of like the lowbrow. It's the same universe. We just handle this one city. They're the B-grade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Don't mind us.
0: It's just the city. <laughs> Outside the city limits? No, sorry, you'll have to call The Avengers. But um, here's their number. Now, very soon, Mark, we're going to have a special guest reviewer joining us to talk about this new Netflix film called to the bone before we get there something else coming up later in the show we're going to be talking about this third season of fargo that's been a hit tv series in the last couple of years one of the things it's very notable for as well as the coen brothers original film is the minnesotan lang- uh, accent that that rampages through fargo as in i'll try to give this a go uh yahon i got the hamburger helper okay then is that all right Okay, then. then. Okie dokie. Yas and Hans and that sort of thing. It's a difficult accent. This is why I've never been cast in Fargo, because I can't quite nail it. (laughs) That's exactly
1: the only reason (laughs) I can think of.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But which actor who has actually been in the Fargo series has admitted to it being the hardest accent they've ever had to do. So for true or false this week, this is the setup. Which actor has said this is the hardest accent they've ever had to do? Was it Ted Danson, who was in the second season? Kirsten Dunst, who was also in the second season? Ewan McGregor, who's in the third season that we're soon to talk about? And Billy Bob Thornton, who was in the first season? Which of those found the Minnesotan Yars and Horns and it's kind of like the, the hardest rever- thing to
1: do? It's kind of like the reverse of who you think the best actor is, because the better they are, the less trouble they're going to have. So you're actually asking me to pick out of four actors who I think is the worst.
0: Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, okay. but we'll we'll find out who the real person had who struggled the most with that. So after. is it Ted Danson, Kirsten
1: Dunst, Ewan McGregor, or Billy Bob Thornton?
0: Yeah, who do you like least? People, <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out who you like least um, very very soon. Netflix is becoming a household name in Australia with its never-ending stream of content, and there are some shows designed to entertain your kids and then others that you might want to use to educate them, which brings us to this week's What Your Kids Are Watching segment on the big picture. Netflix has scored critical acclaim for its series on teenage suicide, 30 Reasons Why that really blew up this year. Now it's tackling another scourge for young adults, the struggle against anorexia with the movie To The Bone. To the Bone stars Lily Collins and Keanu Reeves and tells the story of a young woman struggling with an eating disorder and she's challenged by her unconventional doctor to see herself and her illness in a whole new way. And we're joined by guest reviewer this week, Laura Bennett, who says that there's plenty more insights in store in To the Bone, not just for young women, but everyone who's ever been challenged by their body image. Laura, thanks very much for being part of the show.
1: I've got to start by saying that when I think of this film, uh, To the Bone, um, I is it just really a, a story about anorexia? Is it just really mm. a story? Is that still a big issue? That you know, I, I remember it a lot when we were at high school, but is it so, so now?
2: Yeah, I think it's one of those things we can't forget is still an issue because all of us in that high school window, it seems like we're really aware of these conversations and it seems very at the forefront of our lunchtime chats with girlfriends and, and all of that kind of thing. But as adults, we can't forget that it is still very prevalent, yes, for young people, but also in Increasingly, I think, in this age where we're surrounded by social media at whatever age you're at, that ability to have comparisons constantly thrown at you is still there for the grown the grown women, the grown men in society. It's very much something, unfortunately, we still do deal with.
1: And to the bone makes that point that it's not just a young person thing.
2: Yeah, well, what you have is Ellen, the main character, she goes into a rehabilitation centre and although her story is as a young woman facing anorexia, they show you a cross-section of other young girls but who are anorexic or bulimic for different reasons than what she is. There's a young guy. There's also an expectant mother. You've got quite a cross-section of people from various different backgrounds coming to the rehab centre for all sorts of different reasons.
1: You actually mentioned this with Chang before the show, just that this is a more about eating disorders in general than it is just about anorexia.
2: Yeah, I think that's what it's trying to cover off is that while Ellen's story is uh, hers of anorexia, you've got – there's even one girl who would probably be considered medically overweight, but she just has – an issue with eating. And that's what they define an eating disorder as. It's not just that you want to starve yourself. It could be that you just have any kind of unhealthy relationship with food. And personally, as someone who wouldn't have ever said, I have a quote unquote eating disorder, if you've ever counted calories, if you've ever felt like you should go for a big run after eating a burger, this film really does start to make you question, why, why do I have a need to moderate or somehow change what I eat? Or why do I feel a need to have self-discipline with my food consumption? And it touches on the way those simple things which we can do in a healthy context, the way those can actually be the building blocks of an unhealthy relationship to food.
1: And not just for women too. Now, I understand that men are involved. Uh, it's actually a challenge for men. And I've got to say, from a guy's perspective, um, 20 years ago, I mean, I've always been personally well-dressed and well-kept. <laughs> but, you know, we, could, we basically could be slobs. You know, women yeah. were the ones who were much better dressed and presented and guys would just turn up hanging on the arm of some beautiful woman. Right, um, but now I guess guys have. Far more image conscious, far more looks conscious.
2: Yeah, and it can be for different reasons. I mean, two of the things of, that come to mind, of course, is the introduction of the metrosexual. All those years ago when that term was coined, it really started to make all guys... All those years ago makes me feel it very old. Okay, hey, I was there too. It's okay. But it makes you realise that guys do have... They have thoughts when it comes to their image. And in into the bone, you've got a young guy who's been a ballet dancer. He's been very athletic. He gets an injury and then that then is the trigger point for why he has not eating disorder not just to look better, but to try and get back to this sense of physical health and strength, and he feels like food's going to be the way to that. But then, also a film many of us may have seen or not, you probably avoided it, Baywatch, the new Baywatch movie. No, I
1: suffered through it, yeah. You have
2: Same here. You have the alternative thing where guys, that over-bulking, that sense of we've got to be so fit and so big, there are pressures for guys just as much as there are for girls. I
1: think it's interesting when you raise that. The whole concept of phrase, it's probably very um, in the public domain now. Now, the cheat day. As Mm. if um, a day in which I was actually giving myself something pleasurable to eat was a cheat. For the rest of the day, I should be really disciplined all the time.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's that thing of, I mean, food should just be something we consume for nutrition to make our bodies healthy. You want to come at it with a very balanced perspective. But because we have so many voices telling us what we should and shouldn't eat and we can't be irresponsible about our food choices anymore when it comes to just health in general, you do feel a sense of guilt if you make any decision that your doctor would say is a bad idea or an article in a magazine would say won't make you look good.
1: Now, it's interesting you raised the word responsibility. As a Christian, how did you respond to it and what did it make you feel you should or shouldn't be doing?
2: Well, looking at this film from a grown-up perspective, obviously there's definitely the responsibility of what audience do we show this film to, considering that young uh, audiences may have a different perspective and an immediate reaction to the movie than we might. But then also, around this film and the promotion of it and others like the series 13 Reasons Why, there's this sense of wanting to destigmatize conversations on suicide, conversations on eating disorders. And I definitely agree with that. If we can make sure that people aren't devalued because of the challenges they face That's all well and good Make sure conversations are had
1: So we definitely want people Coming out and saying I'm struggling with
2: Yes, this. you want people to get help And you want to be that friend Who can have those conversations With them when needed But my concern is That we make sure We don't destigmatize The disease and the illness itself We don't want it To make it seem normal For people to have suicidal thoughts We don't want it to seem normal To want to kill yourself By starvation Those sorts of things While they are prevalent In our society We shouldn't ever I don't think I think get to a place where we think that's normal that's acceptable that's fine let's open up conversation about them and try to bring restoration in the lives of people who find themselves at the point where that's the solution they're looking to for whatever the problem is that is a the real reason for those sort of things yeah
1: they've got to find something else than that cavernous hole yeah. fill their stomach yeah oh gosh this is so much to think about thanks very much for being part of the show and gosh I guess we'll just look forward to more reviews in the future
2: no worries at all thank you
0: thanks Laura for joining us on The Big Picture and To The Bone is on Netflix now. It's rated MA15+. plus.
2: Okay.
0: Okay, mate, before the break you, you sent us the poser uh,
1: who had the worst time of making that particular Minnesotan accent for Fargo. Um, I don't know. I'm going to take a stab in the dark and say it was Kirsten Dunst?
0: No, mate, no. Because I the, can't say her last name, no. so I figure that must
1: be problems all over.
0: <laughs> no, no, it was Ewan McGregor who's had most trouble with the Fargo accent out of Ted Danson, Kirsten Dunst, and Billy Bob Thornton. And Ewan McGregor has said it's the hardest accent he's ever done, and he's also he's tried Dutch at once. Oh, okay, it's yeah. harder than speaking a Dutch accent, according to Ewan McGregor. Coming up, leading psychologist Lynn Worsley joins us to share practical advice about
1: responding to anorexia before Ben braves the weird, worrying world of Fargo. Welcome back to the show. Still to come, happy birthday, James Bond, and get your dial-up modems ready for the top five internet films.
0: Now, just before the break, we had a special guest reviewer, Laura Bennett, introducing us to the Netflix movie, To the Bone, that chronicles a young woman's battle against anorexia. For many people, young and old, men and women, the struggle with eating disorders is no fiction. You may have had some experience with that yourself, or possibly you know someone who has. So, we thought the responsible thing to do on the big picture would be to add some professional advice to Hollywood's and ask our resident psychologist, Dr. Lynn Worsley, to join us on the show. Lynn, welcome back to the big picture.
3: Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Now, Lynn, you've spent a great deal of time working with people with eating disorders. How common is it?
3: Oh look, it is very common. Um, I couldn't give you the stats right now, but we're seeing a prevalence in um, women, uh, young women and men, and we see it um, happening over a lifetime. So it's not necessarily just something for young kids.
1: No, this always fascinates me because Australia's got to become one of the wealthiest, warmest, most naturally blessed countries in the world. Mm-hmm. Why would people be having eating disorders?
3: Well, we have a number of reasons, I think, that are coming up for eating disorders. One of the reasons is the whole body image debate, you know, trying to look thin, trying to look um, uh, particularly like what the models are in the magazines. But
0: and, Lynn, and Lynn, sorry to cut you off, but do you think that's been amplified, accelerated by the internet age?
3: Possibly, um, but I also don't think it's necessarily the main point. Mm, oh, okay. I mm. All of us are watching that. All of us are seeing that. So we don't all develop anorexia. Um, and eating disorders as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Fair point. Be, might feel a bit funny about our bodies, but, um, I mean, who doesn't? It's, but it's more what happens to get us to that point where you start thinking that starving yourself will be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, from a psychological perspective, what we see mostly is that um, anorexia and bulimia and binge eating and all of those disorders... Um, are often in a a reaction to, say, um, being out of control at some time in their life.
1: Oh, so this is one of those things that they feel like they can control, so they exert that unusual pressure on it.
3: Yes. So, you know, there's an enormous amount of um, cognitive processes that go through um, in order to starve yourself. Mm. Mm -mm. Um, You know, a huge amount of discipline in order to do that. Uh, And that's sort of in response to an area of life maybe where they don't have a sense of control.
0: Now, uh, Mark and I are speaking with Do- uh, with Dr. Lynn Worsley, a psychologist. Um, Lynn, what kind of advice would you offer to someone who struggles with anorexia or no- someone you know is struggling with this?
3: Okay, I'd suggest you go and get some help and start talking about it because it's not as uncommon or secretive it's not a terrible thing to be having it's more like a um uh something that is a lot more common but it is a terrible reaction to your body so you need to get help because you can have long-term effects um by starving yourself early on in life
1: mm. yeah especially i guess when you're talking about young people you're talking about their whole growth patterns um, yeah. do you yeah. think this is just a psychological problem i mean do you see a spiritual dimension to this
3: um, look, any, any, there's an, a spiritual dimension to anything where someone needs to try and get some control. I think that's a real battle, a human battle that we have in all aspects of our lives, trying to get control of our lives in, in response to you know things that are out, out of control in this world rather than to look to God. Um, so I think that's that sort of battle. I don't think it's um, much more than that.
0: Dr. Lyndon Worsley, psychologist, thank you very much for joining Mark and I in the big picture.
3: Wonderful, thank you.
0: Remember that time when you heard someone
1: say something so ridiculous that you were certain it couldn't possibly be true? Ben and I remember that when we heard that the Coen Brothers' Oscar-winning crime drummer Oddball Fargo was going to be turned into a TV show. You know, we rolled our eyes. I think I
0: distinctly remember that day in hearing that news, and it was more than eye-rolling mark. I thought it was a joke. I think I laughed out loud. (laughs) Well, the joke's on us because we're up to season three of Fargo, and the first
1: two were incredible portraits of everyday evil, so how How about season three? What can we do for you here, Ray? Do you still owe me from what happened when we were kids? Ray? No, I'm talking to my brother. Happy to help, really. But where does it end?
4: No tip? Oh, yeah. Get a real job.
1: (laughs) What can we do for
0: you, friend? There we go. Now you're seeing it. You're trapped.
4: And you're the damn parking lot king of Minnesota.
0: Yes, the parking lot king of Minnesota, Mark, is uh, Emmett Stussy, who's played by Ewan McGregor, and Ewan McGregor is also playing the twin brother of Emmett, Ray Stussy, who is uh, a kind of down and out parole officer. So Emmett's super successful, Ray isn't. Uh, Ray is uh, going out with Nikki, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and um, from the first uh, episode of Season 3 of Fargo, you kind of get the setup of this jealous brothers, his rivalry. A little bit like the Jacob and Esau story that we get uh, in the Bible, in, in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Uh, there's th- issues around stolen birthrights and then revenge plots and what's going to happen between these brothers. But in and around the brothers, you get a variety of characters uh, uh, that, that build up, that build up, particularly... Um, a character played by the British actor David Thewlis called Varga, who, uh, like we've seen in other seasons of Fargo, is basically the walking embodiment of evil. This man is, oh my goodness, like David Thewlis I think is incredible anyway, but he is just such a great choice in this and deliciously evil, if that's the right word for me to use. I'm trying to use that advisedly uh, in this role in season three of Fargo, which yeah, it really revolves around these brothers and the issues that they have
1: now actually I'm late to this so I've actually just started watching this and I'm enjoying um, season three you've watched this earlier because it's been spread over a number of broadcasts it was SBS first
0: yeah yeah so we were talking about this uh, during the week like let's check out uh, season three of Fugger let's talk about it I'm like oh I watched that like two months ago I think because it was on SBS on demand it it, it came up and now it's on Netflix Um, so it's a little bit of a curiosity at the moment in terms of where things turn up on streaming and when you can actually watch them so my my wife Amy and I actually did that thing of we were waiting a week for the new episode to show up, whereas
1: whereas
0: it's so old school now to be uh, to be doing that. So uh, we, what, yeah. do you think, what do you think separates this season, yeah, you know, in
1: your opinion, from the two previous seasons, or is it all much of a muchness?
0: Look, it's definitely got the same Fargo vibe, and that's everything from the look and feel, as in the visual look and feel, to the sort of characters to the sort of storylines that we're looking at. But the big difference between this this series the other series and the Coen Brothers original film is that it's not set in and around Fargo. I'm not even sure Fargo gets a mention, the actual town, Fargo. And also there's no clear link between the characters in this series from what I remember of across the ten episodes with what's come before it, whereas particularly the first two seasons did interlock and had something to do with each other, mm. even if somewhat loosely at one, times. There's a
1: one-character crossover which comes late in the season. I don't want to spoil it for anybody. But, um, but yeah, I, I think this one is a part from the other two seasons. I think that's fair. Um, The Fargo backbone remains, though. Everyday people caught up in increasingly terrible events thanks to the decisions they make.
0: Yep, yep, that's still there. It's one of the things I really like about Fargo. I don't know about about you, Mark, but one of the reasons I keep going back to Fargo is I'm very struck by the idea of the consequences of actions. And I think this might say a little bit about me, but I kind of like watching people, particularly when they make the wrong call, seeing the consequences of their actions come back on them. I actually think I take a bit of delight in seeing people, particularly if the consequences are negative or as negative as I think they should be because the actions they've done are wrong. And so in the case of Ray and Emmett, the choices they make, again, similar to these early seasons in Fargo, they're these everyday guys that are confronted with situations where they could make a decision either way to do the right thing or do the wrong thing. They do the wrong thing and sometimes it could seem minor, uh, although usually in Fargo they've got a pretty quick way of escalating, but it can often seem these minor choices that you're making and then you see the eruption. So I think that that's the similar the similar thread of Fargo. So Fargo now is almost as a brand, is is branching out, branching out, where it's not so much necessarily about trying to link everything together like it used to, but instead it's become almost a vehicle for these particular types of stories about these particular types of people mm-hmm. that I think are continually trying to remind us as viewers, to uh, reconsider almost uh, the choices we make in our own lives and what the consequences might be. I don't think that most people are like uh, like you and me uh, are not going to get into a situation like Fargo. I think, well, I think, but that's but the, that's the could whole point we? of
1: the series. Is I feel like it's the stupidity of evil is so on display in Fargo that you you think. This one thing you can get away with, or it's mm, not gonna mm. be a big deal. True, true. Be okay, and that's why I feel like yeah, you people like you and me and everybody else out there are actually just dancing on the edge of a Fargo plot somewhere. So, <laughs> look, um, Fargo season three. I'll be honest, left me disappointed and irritated. Yeah, you were telling me. Yes, end, yeah. yes. And I don't want to. I don't want to labour that. I feel like to some degree, what it did is it. There's a few. I'll just say I feel like the producers are starting to get a little bit bored with the format and started to do a few Twin Peaks moments. Now I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Don't have a go at Twin that. Peaks. And friends. No, no, Twin Peaks is <laughs> good. But Twin Peaks is a completely different style of TV, where Twin Peaks is very much about an alternate, weird meshing of reality. Fargo is very much about normal life and this is how things play out you know villains don't get away with things and etc and etc et you know the um, but what, what about you how did it
0: leave you feeling not as not as cold as you but I agree I don't think this the season's as strong as as the other two um, this one is more similar to first season though where it focuses almost equally on the good and the bad quote unquote sides of the story whereas the middle season I think focus more on the good that the police officers the police officers are usually the embodiment of good in these series uh, which I really like. And Carrie Coon, who plays the police officer in this sh- series, I think does a great job as well. I think what it leaves me with is is what we've really been talking about which is constantly going back to this um, uh, thinking about where we where we individually, where me, where I'm placed in the scheme of particularly evil badness in the world and where it is in me. Again, David Thewlis, this character of Varga, uh, as much as he looks like the embodiment of, the, of evil, and you could almost say that he's uh, almost a stand-in for Satan or something like that. Mm. So people might point at him and say, that guy's really evil. But but what Fargo keeps reminding us as, uh, even in some of the things that David Thewlis does and and some of the um, physical responses he has to the things that he's doing, I think are indicators to all of us. And then when you look at Ray and Em and all these other characters, they're indicators to us that there is evil in us. Mm. There, there is. There mm. is. and you just, A you, twistedness. A twistedness. Whatever yeah. you want to call it, you can't deny it. Mm. You can't deny it. And one of the things I really like about Fargo and Keith's leaving me with is that, and then from there... What am I going to do about it and how am I going to respond to it in my own life? Uh, And Fargo season three, like all the others, like the movie, um, I think leaves you with a strong indication of don't do... What's up on screen
1: Fargo? Indeed. Well, Season 3 is now available on Netflix. It stars Ewan McGregor and Ewan McGregor, and also David Thewlis, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and Michael Stilberg. It's rated MA15+, though, for strong violence, so be careful.
0: And still to come on the show, we're about to get into close combat with new release, The Wall, before we wish James Bond happy birthday and share, like, and hashtag our way through our top five internet movies. Hey, welcome back to The Big Picture. Well, we've come to that part of the show now where we're talking about soundtrack the
1: music that undergirds great movies and productions. In a little while, we're going to talk about the film The Wall, which is actually based in the uh, Iraqi conflict of, of recent years. And so we thought, well, why not look at Films that have used music particularly well, or the other way around, music that has come to typify particular conflicts. Now, you might say, "What's that all about?" Well, look, the British—that's music- basically that. War movies have really good soundtracks. Oh, true, but also some music has just come to re- uh, to, to represent. Conflicts for us. So, yes. you know, it's a long way to Tipperary. Is the classic British music hall song that's all about World War One. Mm, you know, mm. you, it's so closely associated with. You can't think of the Andrews Sisters and the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company B without actually thinking of World War Two. I mean, that's what it's all about. Um, and then we've got a pack of them. You know, like Paint It All Black from the Stones or All Along the Watchtower, Jimi Hendrix. They're very much about the Vietnam War. So there's, we, a, real,
0: there's a real change in music, isn't there? Across I know, all that, Tipperary, Boogie Woogie Boogle Boy, and then Paint It Black. Well, it reflects the depth.
1: Decades of people
0: are traveling true, through. True. So you're looking at yes.
1: the, the the free love sixties and the change in people. So we figured why don't we actually play one of the classic This Suggests a Conflict to You by Van Morrison and the them. ago is a blues song that has been called one of the most played, arranged and rearranged pieces in blues history, starting way back in the 19th century, would you believe? The song is that old. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, most people just know the um, the version done by Van Morrison in, the, yeah. then in 1964.
0: I didn't think Van Morrison was even alive in the 19th century. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> no, it's, it's actually quite an amazing thing when you start playing
1: some of the earlier versions, just how different these sort of versions of songs have been done. And of course, we're talking about it because it was part of Good Morning Vietnam, 1987's release, which had featured Robin Williams as the real-life wartime DJ Adrian Cronow. And the song quickly became symbolic of that otherworldly strange culture clash that was going on in the Vietnam War. Young Americans from the free-love 60s clashing with Asian culture, um, great political ideals clashing, and in the middle of it rock and roll music taking a whole new turn you know, into a new generation itself. So we figured that was a great piece for us to give you for this week's soundtrack segment.
0: The U.S. Coalition's conflict in Afghanistan and Iraq has been examined from every conceivable angle. Movies have given us the president's perspective, the general's perspective, the war correspondent, the businessman, and the man in the street's perspective. All those different perspectives. And now, of course, we're up to the soldier's perspective. But born identity director Doug Lyman has crafted a new tale that reduces the entire struggle to the point of view of just two men in his new feature, The Wall. The war focuses in on these two men, one Iraqi and one American, as they struggle to fight a personal war in a square of desert barely bigger than a football field. You get eyes on him? Where'd he come from? don't oh, know.
1: If I were you, I would start talking, Isaac. What do you
4: want? I want to get to know you. I get one shot.
0: No, 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 no. Second you touch that rifle, you're dead. This is true.
4: When this is over,
1: his family won't recognize him. Aaron Taylor Johnson stars as Isaac. He's a spotter for an American sharpshooter called Matthews. I don't know if you know how this basically works, but generally speaking, they go out in pairs. One of them is spotting for the targets, looking for threats, and things like that, while the other one is using the sharpshooter. Okay, rifle. right. Yep. There you go. Yep. So, And the sharpshooter Matthews is played by John Cena. I, I have to do that because my boys love that man. He's like the former that, wrestling up. guy, That's right? right. Is
0: he former or is he still wrestling? I don't know. He's but four. John
1: Cena, he's like a world wrestling guy. Indeed. So the story focuses on Isaac, though, who's left alone when the pair are lured into the kill zone of an Iraqi striker. Now, what follows is a cat-and-mouse game carried out in an extremely confined space with no hope of help from the outside. So it's a very confined cast of three people inside a very confined setting. And Isaac is pinned down behind this crumbling wall where he has to work out how to save both himself and his partner before he bleeds to death, even as the Iraqi sniper is striving to get inside of his head, you know, over the radio. So it's an amazing
0: plot. Yeah, now... uh I'm trying to find a way of not, you know, really, really, really distilling this down because war's really complex. But for what you just described, that's a very simple plot for a war movie. It is indeed. It's the equivalent of the one-room drama, kind of like
1: Twelve Angry Men. A small patch of desert in the middle of Iraq. A few scattered vehicles. A container. A pile of garbage. This is basically the whole setting.
0: And yeah, so everything it, confined to one location. Indeed, it's, it really sounds like a stage play. Yeah,
1: it does. It's very much like Free Fire. No, oh, that recently, movie the that you talked
0: about um, on the show. Oh, when was that? Like maybe in the last six months. It didn't really do huge business, but you really no. liked that film a lot. It was because it was basically
1: everybody, like a bunch of people of different characters trapped in a warehouse having to deal, as they were firing at each other. And that, and you think that you couldn't sustain it, they were on for two hours. This one too, very much the result is the pressure cooker environment when you have stuff like that. Also, it's simple because it's a chess game plot. Literally, this is a, a like a from a scriptwriter's point of view, this is a classic, you know, Style of, of script. We have good and evil, A and B, you know, white and black, uh, move and counter move the entire thing. So there's got the protagonist, Isaac, uh, against the antagonist, the Iraqi sniper, and they're basically trying to see who can win. Kind of like uh, Buried is like that. That's almost like oh, a Oh, great
0: Ryan Reynolds movie where he was trapped underground in a coffin for exactly. an hour and a half, and that was the whole movie. And that, But, again,
1: that was the whole idea of move and counter-move. What's he going to do? What's the yeah. people who put him there going to do?
0: And step by step. Oh, man, know. I really enjoyed that movie, which, which, is, which is, sounds ridiculous because it was Ryan Reynolds in a coffin underground talking on his phone to various people trying to get out of this um, situation that he was in. That was quite gripping, but... I will find out, I'm sure, from you very, very soon about whether the wall is. But most films about Iraq and Afghanistan tend to have a political dimension, though. So let's get to that first before we hear a bit more about whether the wall's any good or not. Does the wall have that political dimension as well? It does, indeed. It, But basically,
1: it's all being handled at a very personal level, as you sort of said in the introduction. This is very much about uh, Doug Lyman's view of uh, what the wall looks like to two people on the ground. Okay, and so, it, ostensibly, it's... An now, right at the beginning of the film. The war is over, okay? So uh, George Bush has claimed victory. Um, uh, things should be moving towards a peace stage. But both the hero and the villain use this phrase, the war is over, but why are they still here? And they ask each other that all the time. Well, why are we still here? Why are we still fighting? It references a lot of America's need for oil the, and the Iraqi sniper's feeling about his home being invaded. So all these big political things. But this is the war in small scale. Both men claim to be ordinary people caught up in a much larger conflict. The truth is, though, that they've actually both done extraordinary things you know, in the past year or so that they've been there. And the real motivation for them being there is not political at all. It's actually much simpler than that. It's revenge.
0: Oh, okay, okay. Now now we're getting to a, something of a deeper level. It sounds more like a spiritual dimension to this film. Before we get to that, though, is the, is the wall any good? Because it sounds to me like it could be a bit of a, a pressure cooker, psychological... Chiller about people in a war zone. Yep. Am I right?
1: Look, the problem with these scripts is when they are so simple, you really have to work it carefully all the way through, keeping the tension currently going. Or you could go, "Oh well, this is just going to happen again. It's going to happen yes. again." Or I know yes. it's going to happen. And I would say this is a solid seven. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, you know, but, was, was that, okay, it's that's one of solid. those cases where you go, "Okay, this is not the best delivery of this style, but I wouldn't say it's a bad film." I'm um, just, it's not buried. And it's not Free Fire, but it is not bad either okay so
0: So how does the film deal with revenge then
1: okay well the hero isaac is basically seeing his gunner if you like matthews being tortured and threatened by the iraqi he's also seen his friends die and he wants to see his enemy die so that's his perspective um and on the other side the iraqi says he's seen his students die and he's been shot himself at some stage you pick that up and he wants an eye for an eye and there's this really great moment where isaac actually says hang on a second you're no more religious than i am you cloak this whole thing in your you being a Muslim and your country being invaded, but you just want revenge. And I really I calls li- him out on that. Yeah, calls him out on that. And I really like that because here are some characters realizing that an eye for an eye is not really what the Bible says. It's not this sort of like you did this so I'm gonna do this to you thing. That's not biblical at all. And uh, what is in fact going on is people using religion as this cloak to really scrape away at each other and strike out and, and get their vengeance. Uh, and I feel like there's too much much of that going on in society today. So it's something that the film does us a favor and identifies that.
0: The Wall Stars Aaron Taylor Johnson and John Cena. It's rated MA 15 Plus for strong themes, violence, and coarse language. It's not one for the faint-hearted, but for those prepared to walk in front of its crosshairs. It's opened fire at cinema near you on August 10.
1: And we're almost there. Birthday wishes for Mr. Bond, James Bond, and Ben's top films about the internet that you've come to know and love. Welcome back to the show. Well, a very important memo arrived at Big Picture HQ this week. Yes, we get memos, people. That's the sort of important organisation we are. James Bond (laughs) turns... 50 this year. Happy birthday, 007. Happy birthday, Mr Bond. I'm sure this is not news to many people who have been counting down this year. That's okay. But we got a memo. And so it was time to actually acknowledge it on the big picture. The first ever James Bond was released way back in 1967, which doesn't seem so long ago to me, and it was called Casino Royale. Big picture regular Russ Matthews got on the case of the original 007 movie for The Vault this week, and he made some shocking discoveries. It's been
0: 50 years. Russ, should we rush back and watch Casino Royale, the original? I probably would say
4: you might want to give this one a miss. Even though it is definitely an important part of film history, if you're a James Bond fan, this is not what you would necessarily think of as being a valuable film in its canon.
0: Ah, Ross, this is a little bit awkward because, well, the vault segment on the big picture is usually about movies that we want to try to recommend or point people towards because we think there's something significant about it. it. Sounds like you're not so impressed with Casino Royale, but is there something that you think it leaves us with as cinema goers?
4: Oh, you know, it's a fascinating part of history. If you go back and look at it, all the things that happened behind the scenes were actually more interesting than what happened on the front, the big screen. Like part. what? Oh, well, uh, it actually had five different directors. They blew out the budget. It was one of the most expensive films that they've ever made up to that point. It had Orson Welles. It had Woody Allen. There was actually a, almost a fight between Peter Peter Sellers and Orson Welles. Peter Sellers in this as well? Peter Sellers, David Niven, Ursula Andrews. I mean, there's so many different people. I mean,
0: I mean, Ursula Andrews, who was and in Dr. No. Couple years later, the, the, other, the next James Bond film?
4: That's actually what, one of the other fascinating parts of history is that are, there's quite a few different women who actually became Bond girls in the later films or actually in this film. So there's a lot of interesting film history but the film itself is really a kind of a bizarre 1960s kind of trippy um, kind of film that's really more of a parody than it is a really true James Bond film.
0: So the first James Bond film was almost a parody of itself and I'm presuming that given Woody Allen and Peter Sellers are in it renowned comics of the time and then, uh, and then afterwards, what else stands out to you about Casino Royale then? Well, going through and studying it out again, it was really interesting
4: to look back because, one, it it actually kind of launched what I think we've really come to be synonymous with James Bond films. It had a great soundtrack. It had an Academy Award nominated song called The Look of Love by Dusty Springfield, and Burke Bacharach actually put together the soundtrack. So I think
0: the soundtrack has actually outlived the movie itself. So that's probably one thing that probably stands out for it. Loads of people about the James Bond movies remember theme songs, don't they? So it's interesting, from the first movie already had a powerful theme song. Okay, what else stands out? Uh,
4: probably the second thing is that it's really not necessarily as much the launching of the James Bond franchise as it was the James Bond parody, which the James Bond parody is really something that's become synonymous with films since the 1960s. There are loads of different films that, that we've been able to see, it, like Spy Hard, The Tuxedo with Jackie Chan. There's all these different ones that they have, but also it's a given us characters like Johnny English and probably, probably everyone would know would be Austin Powers.
0: If I'm understanding this right, then Cine Royale sounds more like an intro interesting slice of history more than you're recommending we go back and watch it but russ where do you think casino royale the original really sits in the scheme of james bond movies what it did for me in going and looking at the original Casino Royale from
4: 50 years ago, it really pointed me to the inevitable 2006 Daniel Craig Casino Royale, which was kind of bringing it back as the reboot of the whole franchise. It's probably one of the best films within all of the James Bond franchise, and actually probably some would argue that Daniel Craig has actually become one of the best James Bond. The history kind of puts us to um, where we are now in modern times and looking at where is James Bond and where is he going. It's really, it kind of helps you to understand
0: who Bond. James Bond is helps you understand who Bond James Bond is thanks very much Russ for going back to that original Casino Royale that's right the first James Bond film was called Casino Royale 50 years ago not to be confused with the recent reboot starring Daniel Craig Russ Matthews is one of the reviewers over at Insights insights insights.uca.org.au check out all of his stuff also check out some of the new videos that Mark and I have been sharing at Insights Um, recently we've had conversations about everything from the big sick and what we should expect others to be and to do and also an inconvenient sequel, which is out at cinemas this week. Mark wasn't a big fan of it. Turns out he's a bit of a climate change denier, <laughs> Mark, but not because he can't read a thermometer. But for more of that, you can find out... Mark's Thoughts at insights.uca.org.au Videos. We've got videos. Actually,
1: if you want to see more of, of the great work done by the people who support the big picture, head over to eternitynews.com.au where they're also actually hosting some stuff that we're doing specifically for them. Nowhere else will you find me say, no god in Star Trek. Okay. <laughs> 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 Apart <laughs> from
0: over at Eternity. <laughs> over
1: eternitynews.com.au have actually done a bit of an expose on why the makers of Star Trek Discovery, the new series coming out, came down like a ton of Klingons on the Actor who decided to add Lib God into his script. And also, there's a wonderful thing over there from Ben, many of course, on The Big Sick, Dunkirk, War for the Planet of the Apes. It's basically all happening at attorneynews.com.au. Well, The Circle is out this Thursday. It's a technophobic film about the dastardly effects that social media might have on the world if we don't learn to turn off Facebook. That's what I took from it anyway. Yeah, and
0: it stars Emma Watson and Tom Hanks, Mark, and yet it's barely made a stir, a ripple. People aren't really talking about it, but it's it's out. It's around, and you talked about it earlier on the show. You can check out your review at thebigpicturewebsite.com. Well, it got us thinking, surely it's time, surely, to
1: list the top five internet films.
0: Ben, surely? Surely. Agreed. It is now time for the Top 5 Internet Films 2.0. It's actually not even 2.0 because we haven't done the first one. It's 1.0. Oh, wow.
1: It makes it sound really old school, doesn't
0: it? It probably comes with a (laughs) modem. It will, and this will remind you of the old school. 5.0. The Net from oh. 1995, that <laughs> now, Sandra Bullock movie. Now we've referenced this film a couple of times, basically as a joke. We, we <laughs> have, and I, I think, a lot of people do as well. And look, it is, and it's it's pretty cheesy and cornball. Cool um, there's been a lot of films after it, like Eagle Eye and Enemy of the State and Antitrust. All these kind of paranoia online control movies. I think The Net kind of kicked it off. One of the things going for The Net, and the reason I put it on the list, is it was really timely. It actually like was. This is our 1995, uh, effectively the birth of when it was. Still called the information superhighway. Remember that <laughs> when people were saying that the information <laughs> superhighway. Uh, this film came out and really. Um Like it was, it was of its time, and there's a lot about it that's of its time, not in a good way. Uh, But Sandra Bullock does her best as this lonely uh, online uh, systems analyst, and she gets sent this backdoor, quote unquote, into classified files, and then hey presto, like things start going bad for her on the internet, and she somebody somebody takes away her phone number. That's I I know, (laughs) egad! But but she was a woman who was living like almost her entire life online, and this was almost 20 years ago. It was dare I say a bit prophetic, the net about how people were going to go. It's still a bit of a joke, but a very memorable film about the internet. Four. A long time before that, though, was Tron back in 1982. A long time before The Matrix as well, which I was thinking about putting on this list in terms of, uh, if you think about the internet being a, a computer system that basically we live inside. Yeah, a generated reality. That's right. Well, then The Matrix is a great example of that. But way before that was Tron, which is a great example of someone living in with, with inside that created virtual reality. And, this, and for anyone who can't remember, but surely you do, uh, it's about Tron, a computer hacker who gets abducted into this digital world and has to play sort of gladiatorial games to, to get out of it. Jeff Bridges was in that original film. A Disney film had great special effects and jumpsuits and you know bikes that lit up and out of the time it was amazing. That's right, that's right. And it did again a little bit like the net but like way earlier. Predict how the worlds actually become. I don't think it was intended to do that. I was kidnapped into but a video game. <laughs> so possibly not being kidnapped right into Mine a video Canyon game. My was Kingdom though. It wasn't very <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> but place so to many of yourself. us, I think, often feel like we're almost living inside a computer-generated reality. That is exactly what Tron represented. Three. This is a film I loved, Mark. Loved a film called Her. From 2013, I think you it was. Did I did I went a little bit crazy about this film. Uh, it starred Joaquin Wait, Phoenix. I do
1: remember us taking you to the counselling of those long sessions.
0: Yeah, Well, I just like fell in love with this 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 film. Um, it's a a lot better than say I don't know. You've got Mail with Tom Hanks or Electric Dreams back in the in the 80s <laughs> uh, that 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 tried to deal with um, online relationships because this one has this really interesting premise that just sounds so ridiculous. But then it actually worked. Theodore, who's played by Joaquin Phoenix, falls in love with his operating system called Samantha, who has the voice of Scarlett Johansson. Uh, for something that sounds so preposterous in a world where artificial intelligence is on the rise and on the rise and you know, being developed, probably it is being developed as we speak, Mark. I don't think what was depicted in her is that unrealistic. The fact that someone could fall in love with this operating system that is effectively being generated around their own personality. Mm. You're almost creating the human that you want to Create.
1: I think one of the interesting things about this film is going to be that people will look back on it in twenty years' time, in the same way we kind of look back on the net and go, oh, yeah, a bit twee, but actually quite prophetic." And I think when we go twenty years further into artificial intelligence generation, we'll be looking back, going, "Yeah, there's sort of things we thought would happen in, like in her, but actually quite prophetic."
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it really dives into what makes a human, and and can we actually make a human? That was her from twenty thirteen. Good choice. Two. <laughs> but not as good a choice, Mark, as War Games from 1983. This is the best. Yeah, I man, love this, this movie film. is awesome. Look, sure, I could have said a movie like Hackers that Angelina Jolie was in, which became a bit of a cult classic no. about kind of kids hacking in. But War Games, again, like Tron, was amazingly before its time, and somehow War Games is a little bit like you've combined Doctor Strange Love with Ferris Bueller's Day Off because you get Matthew Broderick as this uh, high school hacker who somehow taps into a government system where he he thinks he's just playing a game online, but what he's actually hacked into is a nuclear weapons program, and he launches World War III. Oh, well, he's on the edge of launching World War III. World War III is about to be launched. And so we don't want to give anything away here. We don't want this to give anything away. This actually worth watching. It, it really is, because again, it sounds kind of dumb and twee, and sure, there are some cheesy elements of it, and it gets a bit 80s, but it's a really, again, prophetic look at, and I think on the scary side of things, what the internet age might possibly be come to what what you might
1: be able to do it actually brings home one that really strong idea that we have reduced the distance between thought and action right down to a keystroke and i think that's amazing
0: one I don't think, Mark, it could have been anything apart from the social network from 2010. Yeah, that that great David right f- out there. Yeah, that great <laughs> David Fincher film about Mark Zuckerberg, creator of Facebook. It's still up for debate exactly how accurate this is about what happened with Mark Zuckerberg. But I think what it does, Mark, is captures so much about the internet in one film and one story. I mean, everything from this guy, this amazing kind of contrast of this bloke who's basically a social loner but creates the biggest social network system on the planet um uh, but but how um uh, the how the what you see in the social network is you see uh, the the rise and rise of facebook the rise and rise of the internet and basically how it holds up a mirror to ourselves and amplifies ourselves and the best and worst of ourselves mm. get exposed mm. through this interconnected web going across the planet that's why i chose the social network and not only that it's also a great piece of work People want to go on the internet and check out their friends, so why not build a website that offers that friends, pictures, profiles.
4: I'm talking about taking the entire social experience of college and putting it online.
3: site so got 2,200 hits within two hours? 1,000. 22,000. This
4: idea is potentially worth millions of dollars.
0: Millions?
4: He stole our website. They're saying we stole the Facebook I know what it said. So did we? A
0: million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? A billion dollars. You're going to get left behind. It's moving faster than any of us ever imagined. Get left behind. Let's sue him
4: in federal court.
1: That's amazing. Got to watch that. Social Network, great movie. (laughs) Coming up next week, Steven Soderbergh's Logan Lucky. Stephen
0: King's The Dark Tower. And Mark Hadley's Top Five Realities. (laughs) (laughs) We are going places. We will be going places to the show next week. And there I will definitely be Ben McKenna. And I'll still be Mark Hadley. See you then. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production. Sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world.